Hi, and welcome to today's daily devotional. And today we're going to be looking at a passage in John 13. I'm not going to be reading the entire passage, but if you have your ability to have a Bible in front of you, then you can be looking at it. This is where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And this is actually the third, this is before the Passover, and it's right before Jesus' crucifixion. And it's the third Passover that Jesus had during his ministry. So one of the things which we realize in this world is that we all have problems. We all have different types of problems. Um, you know, so for the ancient Jews, the problem was the Romans. And the Romans were the problem. If you got rid of the Romans, then the world would be better. And maybe two years ago, the problem was COVID. And COVID was the problem. If you got rid of COVID, then the world would be better. And then it was Ukraine. And then it was gun control. And then it was abortion or whatever the problem is. Then if you get rid of the problem, then we just think the world will be better because consciousness is more or less monofocal, good and bad. And so for the Jews, the problem was the Romans. And if you got rid of the Romans, the world would be better. And so there was this idea that the Messiah would come and he would lead an army and they would get rid of the Romans. And then Jerusalem would be the capital of the world and Rome would not be the capital of the world. And so one thing which we see here is we see the devil prompting Judas to do things. And before this, we see the devil, or at least Jesus, calling Peter the devil and saying to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. And it's an interesting thing because you can wonder, what was Jesus saying to Judas? And what was Judas's motivation in betraying Jesus? And we don't often consider this, but I was considering it a little bit in this context. And I was thinking, maybe what Judas's motivation was, was to get Jesus in a corner. Because the Pharisees had been trying to kill Jesus for a while now. And Jesus keeps evading their attempts and just getting away. But maybe Judas thought, well, if I get Jesus into a corner where he can't back out, then he'll put on the Iron Man suit and he'll go ahead and do away with them. And then he'll go on to the Romans. And then off to Jerusalem we go. And then off to Rome we go. And we take over the world. And maybe that's what Judas thought. And Jesus, maybe Peter thought a similar thing when he told Jesus that you're not going to die. That's not what's going to happen, Jesus. You're not going to die. So this is an interesting passage because, as it says here in the beginning of the section, verse 4, So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is akin to Iron Man taking off his suit before battle. What are you doing, Jesus? You're washing your disciples' feet? Peter says, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, Unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Peter knows how the structure is supposed to go. Jesus is supposed to be up here. Peter's down here. Peter does what Jesus wants. But that's not how Jesus had it. We're looking for, at times, the great reset. We're looking for all things to be better. But in this passage, we see Jesus saying, I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is a scalable example of how Jesus saves the world. By washing his disciples' feet. By becoming their servant. Not by hulking out and destroying the Romans and taking over the world. But by showing them the law against which there is no exception. The law of love. And this is what we can do in our daily lives. Instead of winning, instead of trying to get the best of the other person in our interactions, or trying to be the best in the room, or 
doing things to impress other people or even doing things to try to impress ourselves, maybe we could humble ourselves and act as Jesus did and wash, proverbially at least, the feet of those around us and not be so concerned with taking everything over. So that's my what I had to say. So let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. I thank you that you came to this world as a servant, as someone who suffered for us, and I pray that we would be able to be more and more like that, more and more like how you are, more and more of a servant to one another and to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Today our daily devotional is going to be in John 15, particularly verses 9 through 17. I'm going to read the verses to start us off with. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So, in Greek, there are three different words for love, and a lot of people know about this, but the three different words are eros, agape, and phileo. And eros is a romantic or sexual type love. That love is also the type of love that you have for eating. It's the love of being one with. Phileo is a type of love that's reciprocal. It's one for a friend, where I give a little to you, you give a little back. It's this reciprocal thing. But agape is different. It's the type of love that you give and doesn't return. And it's not the type of love that you give and you become one with. It's a type of love that you give and you make something into something else. That's the type of love that agape is. And agape is the word that Jesus is using here. And it's a very interesting passage, and this is central to the idea in Christianity at large, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself, and that we are to love our Lord God. And so what Jesus is basically saying here is that you are to love me, and you are to love each other, even if you don't deserve it. And this type of love is what would transform the Roman Empire, because it would take those who are marginal, the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, the lost, the slaves, the lower class people, and would give them value. This is what this type of love is what really makes people saved. This is the type of love that Christ gave to us that makes us saved. It turns us from something which is corrupt and brings us, despite nothing of ourselves, into something else. This is the type of love that a parent has for a child. I have seven younger siblings, and so I've seen quite a few different babies. And much to a mother's chagrin, a little baby can't really do much. It is basically a slug. It's not even really a person in the same way that grown people are persons. But what a parent does is they love that baby into personhood. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you are to love one another into something greater. I am loving you 
as he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I am loving you in this way. I'm bringing you to be sons and daughters of me. And when you do this to one another, then it creates this force. This is what would take over the Roman Empire culturally. This is what would take over the greatest empire that's ever existed, is this type of love. It's the type of love that's akin to making a chair into a Ferrari. That's agopic love. That's what we're talking about here. It's the sacrifice of laying one's life down for his friends. This is very, very difficult to practice, and it's something that is required of us, though, as Christians. And so, we should pray that God would give us the strength to love each other like this, even when we don't really feel like it, or even when it doesn't seem fair. Because it's not fair. It's not phileo. It's not the reciprocal thing. It's not eros, where you're getting something out of it, and you're making yourself into something greater by becoming one with something. It's totally sacrificial. And that's what Christ calls us to. That's what he commands us to do. And it's not based on a feeling. C.S. Lewis said, love is not an affectionate feeling, but the constant wish for the other person's good. And that's paraphrased, but something of that sort. And so that's what real love is trying to do. And that's my devotional for today. And I hope that this will help to inspire anyone to love their neighbor and love God more and to love them into something greater. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your love that you have shown us. Thank you for your word so that we can study this love, study how to love one another, study and know how you have loved us. And I just pray again that you would give us the strength to do this type of love, to follow after you, to follow into your footsteps, and to become more and more like you, and to bring others to be inspired to be more and more like you as well, that we would plant those seeds through loving our neighbor as ourself, through the self-sacrificial love. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Good morning, and I'm going to be doing the daily devotional this morning, and today we're going to be looking at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, and particularly verse 32, but I'll read a few verses before, and we'll be looking specifically at the topic of forgiveness and the importance that it is for us to forgive one another. So I'll start reading in verse 29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. One of the interesting things about forgiveness is that it's a very important and central aspect of the Christian life. In Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray, when he's teaching them the Lord's Prayer, he follows it up with talking about forgiveness. And he talks about how if you forgive, then the Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive, then the Father won't forgive you. And so that's a whole discussion that we'll sidestep right now. But the important part to remember is that forgiveness is a very important thing. If you can't forgive, then you can't really live with another person. Uh, many, many relationships are destroyed by lack and inability of the individuals involved to forgive. Forgiveness is what a lot of, is a, is a primary way in which human beings show love to one another, uh, self-sacrificial love. One example of forgiveness that I've always been struck by since I read this book in eighth grade, The Hiding Place by Corrie ten Boom, is an example of forgiveness that she had to go through. 
when later in life. And I'll read the section of this and show how it connects to this forgiveness idea. I continued to speak, partly become, because the home in Blumendahl ran on contributions, partly because the hunger for Betsy's story seemed to increase with time. I traveled all over Holland to other parts of Europe to the United States. So for background, she's a World War II concentration camp survivor, but her sister Betsy did not survive. And so she's going and speaking about these things. But the place where the hunger was greatest was in Germany. Germany was a land in ruins, cities of ash and rubble, but most terrifying still, minds and hearts of ashes. Just across the border was to feel the great weight that hung over that land. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's plain, blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful for I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. And we could think to ourselves, those sins... Those sins of racism, those sins of betrayal and extermination and genocide and absolute rejection. Those sins? Does Christ's blood really cover those sins? As it says in Ephesians, does Christ's blood really cover the sins of those who completely and utterly reject Him? Those who completely and utterly abuse and reject us? His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile, to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest smart spark of warmth or charity. And so, again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from him to me, while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness, any more than it is on our goodness, that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. So when God says, if you do not forgive one another, neither will I forgive you, it's almost as if he's saying, if you do not forgive one another, then you're not really accepting my forgiveness. That's, in a way, what he's saying. And when Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4, that we should forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us, it's on the basis of the cross, it's on the basis of the forgiveness that we've already been given, that we forgive others. The cross was the thing that forgave humankind. The cross was the thing that reinstantiated a true relationship between mankind and God. And in the same way, forgiveness between each other, those who are even our enemies. As Jesus says, you know, we're, we ought to love everyone up to and including our enemies, but even those who are close to us, forgiveness of all men is what makes true relationship possible with them and with God. When we wreck those relationships, when we have those horizontal relationships in disarray, it messes with our relationship vertically with God. 
So one thing that I feel we should try to do, try to concentrate on, is the forgiveness God has given us and not basing our forgiveness or our goodness on our own will, our own power, but only and solely on His grace. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank You for this day. I thank You for Your forgiveness. I thank You for the sacrifice of Your Son to forgive us. I pray that we would meditate on that, that we would think on it, that it would empower us to be able to forgive and love those around us, and that we would become more and more like You in this way every single day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hi guys, today I wanted to talk about a few passages, one of which is where Jacob wrestles with God, or the angel, or however you want to say it, in Genesis 32. So I'll read the passage, and we'll go from there. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with it, man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So this passage is interesting, because actually where, you know, so there you have the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel is called Israel after Jacob, because Jacob's name eventually gets turned into the name Israel. And Israel means one who wrestles with God. And so I was thinking a little bit recently about why God gives us hard things to deal with and doesn't always seem fair. And then it's always obvious, at least to some degree, that God gives his chosen people, Israel, hard things to deal with. And that those people are having to wrestle with him. Because it's not necessarily the fact that God just takes a step back when bad things are happening to us. Sometimes he does those things to improve us. In Romans 8, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That includes our trials. And James 1 talks about how if you want wisdom, then you can pray for wisdom. Right before that, it's talking about how trials produce wisdom and how you will have trials and temptations and that if you have trials and temptations and if you withstand, then you will not be tossed to and fro by the waves. And so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how come we have to have bad things happen to us? And this is kind of a perennial question of life, and it's not just believers that have to deal with bad things. It's everyone has to deal with bad things, you know, um, from minor disappointments. You know, maybe you were accidentally late to an important meeting by two and a half minutes. You know, there's a minor disappointment. Or maybe you're child got bone cancer at five years old. Major disappointment. It's not even a disappointment. That's a tragedy. And we could think, why does God let these things happen to anyone? Why is life so full of wretchedness and misery and suffering? And why can't everything just go the way that I want it to? And then I was also thinking about the fact that in Christianity, the major 
the major event which happens is the cross and the resurrection. And it's interesting that in Christianity we would we would believe that God would make himself into a man and then die. And for example, the Muslims don't believe, well, number one, that Jesus was God, but number two, that he even died because God wouldn't let himself die, let alone a prophet. Or wouldn't let a prophet die, let alone himself. And it's kind of a curious thing that God would come and let his enemies kill him. And so why did God let himself suffer? And I've been thinking about these things. And one passage which also comes to mind is uh, Philippians 2, where it talks about, I guess we could say, the suffering servant. It says, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So not only did God become man, God let his enemies crucify him, as I said. And in our faith, one of the central things is that we are those who wrestle with God. We are in some ways, and the theology can kind of get tricky, but we are God's new Israel in some ways. Now the Israel is not exactly that way, but the church is in some ways God's people and God's people wrestle with him and we'll have trials, but those trials aren't something that we should shy away from. We should go forthrightly into them and bravely and be thankful for what God is giving us, be thankful and rejoicing in our suffering as Paul talks about. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do. But if we can do that, then maybe we will become closer and closer to God because God is giving us these things to test us, to improve us, to sanctify us. Instead of rolling over and giving up and feeling sorry for ourselves, maybe we should count ourselves blessed for the trials that we have, even if in the moment it seems impossible to count ourselves such. And that's the exhortation I wanted to give this morning. So let us pray. Father God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done for us, through your son Jesus Christ on the cross, through his death and resurrection, for the fact that we can be saved, but not only saved, but that we can be sanctified, that we can be brought closer to you. I pray that we would see the trials that we go through and handle them, not as victims, not as someone who's complaining, but as someone who counts themselves blessed and worthy of the suffering that we're given. And I pray that we will rejoice in you during those times. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. Today I wanted to talk about um, kind of the possession of our life and how God has possession of our life. There are two passages I wanted to look at, the first of which is in John 5. This is where the man is healed at the pool of Bethsaida. So I'll start in verse 1 reading it. After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jews went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at 
at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he was that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was a Sabbath. And the Jews therefore said to him, Who, who has cured you? Or, excuse me, the Jews therefore said to him, Who was cured? It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. So the thing which is interesting to me about this passage and which hit me about this passage is Jesus heals this guy on the Sabbath. He's been lame for 38 years, which is a very extensive period of time for a human lifespan. And, you know, he's kind of not able to heal himself by getting into this pool. We don't really know if this is kind of a folk thing, if they were actually being healed, what was actually happening. But they believed that if they were the first ones to get in the pool when the water was stirred that they would be made well and Jesus then walks up to this guy we don't know why this guy we don't know why someone else there were multitudes of sick people maybe Jesus healed other people we don't know but this is what the gospel tells us and he says ask him if he wants to be made well and his answer is well of course I do but I can't get there and Jesus tells him rise take up your bed and walk and then he gets up and walks and it's not as though you know walking is a particularly easy skill to learn for the first time as you can see little children trying to walk and so that in and of itself is a miracle and then the Jews say to him and we're assuming the devout Jews and later on in chapter in the later chapters chapter 7 Jesus goes to his festival and he's arguing with them about why he's healing people on the Sabbath etc so this is this is something which continues to occur. They start to plot to kill him right here. But he tells them, well, the guy who healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. And you would think that if someone healed you from something, if someone changed your life in that radical of a way, you would do whatever they asked you to do. You wouldn't argue with them. You wouldn't say, well, you know, it's actually the Sabbath, and so I'm not going to take up my bed and walk because, you know, it's against the rules for me to carry such a thing on the Sabbath. No, he does what Jesus says because Jesus has healed him. Now I want to look at and connect this passage to uh, 2 Corinthians 5. And this is Paul's last letter to the Corinthians of probably four. And five, um, starting at around verse 12, he says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on, your, on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. 
For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he that died for all, that those who live, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What Paul is saying here, particularly verse 15, where he says that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is the a textual example of what is narratively happening in John 5. Jesus heals the guy in John 5. And then it's no longer him who lives. It's no longer him who is deciding, oh, I should not take up my bed. It's this guy who has healed me, this guy who has radically changed my life in a very fundamental way. I'm going to do what he says. I'm going to keep his commandments. And this is extended theologically throughout the New Testament. But this is what the Christian life, I suppose you could say, is about. It's about the fact that if you have been changed by Jesus, by the work that he has done, as Paul says, one died, therefore all died. If you have been one of those all who died, one of those all of the believers who have died with Christ, then you have also been raised again. This is not the only time Paul says this, but I like this particular passage in this context. You have been raised with him, and it is no longer, as Paul says in Romans, I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As he says right here, we no longer... These people no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We have no claims upon our lives as Christians. We have no claims upon our finances. We have no claims upon our money. We have no claims upon, I mean, fundamentally, our health. You know, God can take away our health in an instant. He can give it back in an instant. We have no claim upon, if you have children, upon your children, upon your family, upon your spouse. You have no claim upon any of these things apart from Christ. Our life is not our own. Just as the man in John 5, Jesus changed his life, and then he proceeds to do what Jesus tells him. If Jesus has changed our lives, then we should proceed to do what he tells us. We'll fail and we'll fall at that, but it is something new which has come upon us as believers where we are living for something beyond ourselves that's greater, something that has changed our life, and we're abiding within that. That's what it means to abide. We have been changed and we continue to change, we continue to grow what Christ has given us. All right. This has been something which has been really hitting me recently. My life is not my own, and my life is God's. And whatever God desires for me to do, whatever he claims for me to do, he has claim upon my life. I'm his slave. I'm no longer a slave to myself, but I'm a slave to him. And so I thought this was a very good reminder, and maybe this will speak to someone as well. So let us pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for what you have done for us, sending your son to die on a cross, to become a man, to be humiliated, and then to rise again. I thank you for letting us participate in that death, participate in that suffering, however small, and for raising us again as well. I pray that in that resurrection that we have, that you have given us, in that change that you have made in our lives, that we would live our life for you, and not for ourselves that you would be Lord of our life and not our own, that we would do what you ask, just as the man in John 5, Jesus said, get up, take your mat, and walk. And I pray that we would do the same thing. Jesus has come and changed our life. Get up, O sinner, take up your mat and walk, and that we would do that, that we would not pay attention to what the world says, not pay attention to legalism or what people want us to do, but pay attention only 
to what you have called us to do and how you have changed us. And I pray that we keep these things and that this would speak to someone who needs to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to today's Daily Catch devotional. Today I'll be looking at more than one passage, kind of a, um, I guess, theme throughout more scripture, but we will be looking at some passages in particular. Uh, first, we'll start in Deuteronomy chapter 30 in verse 11 is where I'll start. Um, Deuteronomy is the end of the five books of Moses, the end of the Pentateuch. It's so significant of a book, so significant of a time period that we have a complete book before we move on to Joshua. And so these are Moses's parting words. Almost the entire book is Moses's speech to the Israelites before he goes up on the mountain to die. And this is one of the most I would say, important and lasting words that Moses gave to the Israelites. It's towards the end of his speech. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. So throughout the course of Deuteronomy, Moses is, he's laying out laws. He has a lot of these things where he's saying, if you do this, these good things, then these good things will happen. If you do these bad things, then these bad things will happen. And this is an interesting one because it's towards the end. And... It's basically the end of the, let's say, the long speech, like the, the main speech. Moses talks more, but it's not, this is, this is kind of the end. It's, it's how he finishes it out. If you do good, good things will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. And so then he says, therefore, choose life. As if it's not obvious enough that the Israelites should choose life. But what's interesting is that not too far away, he says to the Israelites, um, after God has spoken to him, he says, um, this is in chapter 31. So there's some kind of narration and God talks to Moses and the Lord tells Moses that the Israelites are not going to obey the commands. And so he says, so it was when Moses had completed writing the words of the law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. 
For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in your hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. And evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. So not only does Moses this whole time say, here are all the laws, here's what you're supposed to do, love the Lord your God, here are the good things that are going to happen to you if you do good, here are the bad things that are going to happen to you if you do bad. Then at the end he says, you know, the end of the speech happens, then uh, Joshua is appointed as a leader, and then the, Mo the Lord speaks to Moses, and then Moses says, you know, well, you're going to choose death. That's what you're going to choose. And what we see next is the book of Joshua. And they go and fight, and there's some good, and there's some bad, mostly good. And then we see the book of Judges, and it's almost all bad. The Israelites are constantly turning away from the Lord. Even the judges, most of them are actually not that great of people. Most of them are not that upstanding. And then you have the Israelites' rebellion with wanting Saul as their king. And then you have David as king, and things are going well for a while until it falls apart. And then David's family falls apart. And then you have Solomon, and things go well for, you know, not very long, especially in the narrative. It's longer in reality, but in the narrative on the text that we have, not very long. And then Solomon falls away. And then you have a process through which there are good kings and bad kings. Then Israel gets taken over. Then Judah gets taken over. Then they're led into captivity. But one interesting thing, again, back to Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, I would say, is a very powerful book. If you read it and you read it in light of what happens to the nation of Israel. Right before the end of Moses' speech, right before that first passage that I read, the Lord says that if you if you come back, I will allow you back. I will give you your land back. I will give you your inheritance back. And you will be my people once again. Now, the issue here with the Israelites, the issue with their sin, is that they are going to turn away to these other gods constantly. And they're going to be enticed by them. And they're going to choose death, as Moses predicts. And why do they do this? Why can they not choose God? And fundamentally, at the deepest level, it's because the redemption has not happened. Christ has not come. And obviously that's a prophecy in this, in this time period that we're looking at. But Christ has not come to them. He has not made all things new. And so what Christ does, as we see in the New Testament, is he gives us new hearts. And so when God comes to us and says, Today I'm setting before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And we can read this in our context and go, Well, maybe we don't want life. Because life is actually hard. Maybe we don't want to fight temptation. Maybe we do want to set up for ourselves our own gods. But the difference between us and the Israelites, and the difference between what God has set before us and what God set before the Israelites is, God predicts, to Moses, he, give, he tells Moses that they're going to go into this land and they're going to fail. Why are they going to fail? Because their hearts can't be changed. There's no new covenant that is happening. As Paul shows us in Romans, the old covenant is to show us our sin. The new covenant is to renew us. And so through Christ's blood, through Christ's work, we have the power to actually overcome the evil that is presented before us, the temptations that come to us, and we are faced with this choice each and every moment, each and every day of choosing between sin and God's will for us. And it's not that much different between what we are doing in our lives, between what the Israelites are doing. 
The biggest difference is that we not only know the law that God set before Moses, but we also have Christ as our Redeemer, as the one who has made the new covenant for us to live in and to draw on his strength to fight temptation. So that's my devotional, and thank you for joining us. Have a blessed day. Welcome to today's Daily Catch devotional. Today we'll be looking at several different passages, the first of which is Isaiah 6. So this is a very significant passage in the Bible. It's the place where uh, Isaiah gets the coal put on his tongue, there's a seraphim, they're singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. But there's an interesting thing about this, this passage, and it's in the same section, the same chapter, and the same theme. The same narrative is going on, and it's after this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. It starts, um, I'll start reading it on verse 8. And the Lord said, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. This is Isaiah talking. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. So here... Isaiah's received this calling, he's had this vision, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole is just filled with his glory. He sees this vision of the Lord, he sees this vision of the seraphim, and then he says, um, here's the voice of the Lord, and the Lord says, who's going to go out and preach to these people? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. And then the Lord basically tells him, okay, I'm sending you and you're going to fail. That's what he's saying in this passage. And if you're following along, you could probably see it's a little bit harder if you're just listening. But he's saying, you're going to preach to these people until they're taken away. I'm giving you a job that you are going to fail at. So keep that in mind as we look at the next uh, section, the next verse that we're going to look at. We're going to turn to the New Testament, Romans 12. Romans 12 is kind of uh, the start of the last section or final sections of the book of Romans. Paul's gone through his theological argument on salvation. And then he's giving this uh, instructions for Christian conduct. And uh, right here, starting in verse 14, uh, it says, Bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to the men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as it lieth on you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. In particular, looking at this passage, Bless and curse not. Bless them that persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that weep. We are commanded as Christians to sympathize 
with people who are hurting and also when someone is hurting us to bless them and not curse them. This is obviously exemplified in Jesus and his example, uh, particularly obviously on the cross. The last passage I want to look at is James 1. Uh, towards the end of the chapter, another popular uh, passage and one of the most popular verses uh, in the Bible, which says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So I was reflecting on these three passages. Bless them that persecute you, bless and curse not. Give, give place unto vengeance. You know, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, saith the Lord. And also this passage in Isaiah, where Isaiah is told that he is going to fail at his job. And I was thinking, and this is particular to my life in a way, um, that sometimes God will put us in circumstances where we are bound to fail, where we are set to fail. He puts us in a place, he calls us, and he says, maybe not directly to us, but we learn that this is, this is a hard thing that we're in. And maybe he puts us in a place where we're being, in a way, persecuted by other people, where our life seems to be made intentionally hard by the actions of other people. And in the midst of this, we're not supposed to get angry. You know, uh, the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And we're not supposed to remain just, we don't care. But we're supposed to bless these people. And remember that God has placed us in these circumstances, in some cases, for our own good, for our own sanctification. We may think, well, I'm in this circumstance, I'm suffering, God must not want me here, I should do something else. Maybe that, that's not what the voice of the Lord is telling because I feel that what's revealed in scripture, what's revealed in stories as well, which we don't have enough time to get into other aspects of this concept, but is that God will put us in a circumstance, he will call us to a circumstance, which is hard for us as individuals to deal with, but he's put us in there, that circumstance for our own sanctification. And this becomes, this became real to me, obviously in my life, when I realized that this is what God is doing with me and some particular circumstances that I'm working through and that I am not supposed to get angry. My anger does not accomplish what God is trying to do in my life. And I'm not supposed to get angry or persecute back the people who are making my life hard. The people who, even though God's put me in that circumstance, God's put me in a circumstance where the people around me are making things difficult, but I'm supposed to bless them and not become angry. And live as Christ did and live and be sacrificial in what I'm doing. So that's today's devotional and thank you for watching. Welcome to today's Daily Catch devotional. Today we will be uh, talking about wisdom and how God gives us wisdom. The passage that I first want to go to is James 1, at the beginning of the chapter. A very famous passage uh, where James is talking about wisdom and trials. And it reads, if I can find it, I guess. My brethren, count it all joy when you face diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, 
and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, not wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So this is an interesting passage because it has two parts. First is count it joy when you face diverse temptations. It's going to make you patient and this is going to sanctify you. And the second part is, and ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you. But don't second guess yourself asking for wisdom. And this doesn't seem to really make sense. Why are these two passages together? Um, in this area, in Sam and Idaho, you see that there's a lot of this talk about this passage. If any of you ask wisdom, let him ask, wants wisdom, let him ask of God, and it will be given to you. But this, this, is, this is taken out of context in the story of Joseph Smith, when Joseph Smith supposedly asked for wisdom from God and then received divine revel, a series of divine revelations. This passage, though, in the context, does not seem to be saying that God is just going to put wisdom into your lap. He says, count it joy when you face diverse temptations, when you have trials of various kinds. This will increase your faith. This will make your faith whole through the working of patience. And it's interesting that these two things are tied together. It's almost as if, as if, if we ask for wisdom, God will try us. Why else would it talk about how we have to, you know, not be wavering, that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. For let not this man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Why does it use this type of language? And my supposition is that when God is saying this through James, he is saying, if you want wisdom, make sure you know what you're asking for. Because you can ask for wisdom, and I will try you. And maybe you actually don't want to be tried. And if you give up, if you're double if you're double-minded, if you blow with the waves of the sea, you will not receive this wisdom that I talk about. To reinforce this, you can look to the first, um, really the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, but particularly uh, for the sake of time in this morning devotional, we'll be looking at chapter two, verses six through nine, where it says, for the Lord giveth, giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. Dwell on that for a minute. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. God lays up this wisdom for the righteous. For the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Sounds very similar. He, keep, he keepeth the paths of judgment, and preserveth the way of the saints. Thou shalt not understand righteousness, and judgment, and equity, yea, every good pass, path. Throughout the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, before the sayings start, Solomon is musing on what wisdom is and how wisdom works in our life and how wisdom is more valuable than anything else that we can gain. And this is tied up with this, what's happening here in the book of James is that God will show us wisdom if we trust in him and if we remain faithful to the end. And it goes on in the book of James in the first chapter as well to say that blessed is the man that endureth temptation for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which God hath promised to them that love him. God is going to try us. God is going to 
allow us to be put in situations that are not the most fun. We can listen to the advice of others, but even if we have that advice in mind, even if we have that wisdom in mind, we still have to apply it in our life. We can have the knowledge, but we have to apply it in our life. We have to be able to face the temptation. We have to be able to stand up to these stormy circumstances and not be blown by the wind if we want wisdom. And wisdom, as Solomon argues in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs, produces righteousness, produces uprightness. If you have wisdom, you will flee from temptation. And it's a cyclical thing which is happening. God will produce trials, give us more wisdom, give us more trials, give us more wisdom. It's not like it's going to be laid on our lap. So next time, before you ask for wisdom, think about what you're asking for. Do you really want God to take your life and put it how he wants it to be? Do you really want God to give you wisdom? Because it will probably hurt in the process. It probably won't be the most fun. And you'll probably be in a seat. And there'll probably be wind blowing rather hard. So this is my exhortation to you today, is to think about what, what do I want when I'm wanting wisdom? And do I want to be sanctified by God? Do I want to be brought closer to him? Do I want to face these trials? Do I love Jesus enough? And if not, maybe you jump right in and you start loving Jesus more and more. So thank you for watching today's Daily Devotional. Welcome to today's Daily Catch Devotional. Today I will be talking about what we battle against in our lives. If we battle against ourselves, if we battle against something else, particularly when it, come, when it comes to sin. So I wanted to read a couple of passages to start us off. The first of which is a familiar passage uh, contained in the Lord's Prayer even. It can be found in Matthew 6, uh, I believe verse 13. Let me check. Matthew 6, 13, yes. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What I want us to recognize about this verse and remember in our minds as we go through the rest of these verses is the evil one. In the Greek, it is the wicked. And there are a bunch of theories about what's happening here in Matthew. But particularly, we just need to remember that this is talking about something that's bigger than just deliver us. Like there's some agent behind this wickedness, some agent behind this evil. Um, the next passage I want to look at is Ephesians 6, 12. If I had these marked in my Bible, I would do a better job. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the last passage that we're going to look at, at least for now, is 1 Peter 5.8, which reads, 1 Peter, verse 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. So what I want us to recognize about these passages is there's principalities and powers. There's this wicked one. There's this devil who's roaming around the earth, seeking whom he may devour. What we need to recognize in our lives as we sin, as we perhaps not don't sin, is that we are not really wrestling in the secular frame 
that we're often presented with. It's not just like, oh, here's the good things that I can do, and here's the bad things that I can do. It's way more complicated than that. There's way more things that are going on. And what's going on is that there's this agent, the devil, Satan, who is coming into our lives. He's spatially limited, but he's coming into our lives, not inside of us, but in our circumstances, and he's trying to make us fall. He's trying to draw us away from God. We are not just out here in a vacuum making decisions. There's the spirit inside of us as believers, but there's also this devil. There's the evil one who is, who is trying to get us to do certain things to keep us from the kingdom. And this doesn't mean losing salvation, but he does want us to get farther and farther away from God. It's not as though we're out here you know, just floating around, like I said, making decisions right or wrong in this secular frame. There's this, the world that we live in is spiritual. It's primarily spiritual for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. In Colossians, there's a similar verse as well, that we fight not with weapons of this world, but with spiritual weapons. The world, the things that are happening around us are primarily spiritual. And we need to start to recognize this when we're sinning, when we're dealing with something, are we realizing who is attacking us? And what do we do when we realize who's attacking us? It doesn't necessarily change our circumstances, but it changes our posture towards God and it changes our posture towards ourselves. I wanted to read as our final verse, an obscure verse um, in the book of Jude, which is an obscure book and uh, it has one chapter. So it's Jude 9, Jude verse 9. It says, uh, Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. This is saying, not even Michael, the archangel, the highest of the angels, would rebuke the devil. He said, The Lord rebuke you. We ought not in our own lives, often, and this can get complex, but we ought not rebuke the devil ourselves. We ought not talk to the devil. We ought not associate with him. What we do when we pray is we pray to the Lord, deliver us from the evil one. We pray to the Lord that he would take us away from the snares and the traps of this roaring lion, the devil. And this is how we begin to enter into the spiritual battle, is by recognizing that our adversary is real. He's not just this figment of our imagination. He's not just this evil force. He's an agent in our universe trying to bring about our destruction. And we ought not rebuke him, but we ought say, we are not necessarily your authority, but God is your authority. And you have been defeated through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is how we rebuke the devil in our lives, is when we talk to God. So I want to exhort all of you to recognize in your life, am I fighting this spiritual battle, or am I just going about in a secular frame, deciding right and wrong? Am I realizing that it is the devil? This does not make you a victim. This is, in a way, and I don't mean to use this word how it's usually used, but it's empowering, in a way. It's empowering to realize that it's we're in this spiritual battle, and God is on my side. But I need to recognize who my enemy is, and deal with him accordingly. Deal with him through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's my exhortation for you today. I hope you have a good day. Welcome to today's Daily Catch devotional. Um, today I wanted to talk about uh, 
our struggle with sin and how we can often struggle with sin and constantly fail in our attempts to be holy and to get beyond our sin. And this can come through addiction, this can come through habits, this can come through genetics, through your parents, the people you are around, this can come from your own dispositions. You have habitual sin. How do you get beyond habitual sin? And why, at times, does it feel like God will not help you in your habitual sin? Why will God not come and help us when we're struggling with something? And I, I can't necessarily, and this is hard to speak about, this is hard to um, record a video on, and I feel um, hesitant to do so, but I felt that this is an important thing and hopefully I can shed some light on it. So uh, I wanted for us to look at a passage, um, one of the only passages in the Bible where uh, the author or even an individual is described as struggling with the sin and not being able to overcome it. So this is going to be um, Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. This is Paul talking, obviously. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do not, I do allow, for that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that is what I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but the sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is presented with me. Paul's talking about how, and I'm reading on King James translation, so it may be kind of hard to follow, but he's talking how I want to do a good thing, but then I end up doing an evil thing. And this can be a situation in our lives. Most of the sins that we commit are habitual sins. Most of the sins that we commit, we commit over and over again. And um, this is a hard, hard thing uh, to deal with. At the same time, Paul is talking about how it is not me who does this sin. For I am a changed man. I am a changed person through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not me who is doing the sin, but the sin, you know, the, it, it's the sin that dwells in me. The evil that still dwells in me that's acting on itself and causing me to commit these sins. That's kind of what he's saying. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to understand a lot more than what I can read. So I'll kind of summarize. Um... Before in the chapter, he says, um, you know, all this stuff about the law and how the law is bad. That's what he seems to be saying. But then he says, if I had not known the law, I would have not known sin. If I had not known the law, I would not have known covetousness and lust. And he's, he's talking about how the law shows him his sin. But at the same time, he, he's building this argument about how the law creates in you a self-righteousness. That, and this is this is constant throughout the epistles, even in uh, other epistles written by other authors, that if you stumble in the law, then you're done. But the law can create in you this legalism, this feeling of, I'm getting it all right. I'm, you know, better than everyone else. I'm 
you know, maybe I only have one sin that I'm dealing with, not five or 10 or 20, or maybe I'm not the person on the street who just sins all the time. Maybe I'm, you know, the righteous person who only sins some of the time. And this is what the law creates in us. But at the same time, it's a mirror. It shows us our sin. And, and then an interesting thing happens. And these two chapters, in my experience, are not usually connected, Romans 7 and Romans 8. And I don't have time to read um, Romans 8, which then leads into Romans 9 and it, Paul's building this whole theological argument, but essentially what he's saying in Romans 8 is that we walk in the spirit now, not in the flesh. And so we have the ability to, you know, do away with sin, do away with the carnalness of our nature. That's what he's laying out, at least in the first part of Romans 8. Now, putting all of these together, I was praying about this and I'm not sure if my insight is entirely right, but looking at how the law produces in us a pride. I was thinking, maybe God does not allow us to stop our habitual sins. Because if we did, we'd become prideful. Because if we did, we'd become prideful and we'd become judgmental. Maybe God keeps these sins, allows us to keep sinning because we would commit all the worst sin of becoming prideful, becoming self-righteous and judgmental, of saying, I am the one who is not sinning anymore. I'm keeping the law. Instead, God brings us low. He shows us that pride, overcoming the sin and having pride is worse than the first sin. You're sweeping the house, as Jesus said, sweeping the house of the spirits and letting tenfold more come in. Um, the law is proud and we are not God. And when we see in ourselves a moral perfection, see in ourselves a self-righteousness where we can overcome these sins or we're not doing these sins. We sit in this place of judgment upon other people and we, we feel that we are in the place of God and we don't have the spirit living through us. We're not living through a struggle with sin, struggle with our humanity. And maybe this is why. And I, I think, there's a good theological, scriptural, textual reasons to believe that God will keep sin in our lives until we are ready to let go of our pride, to let go of our self-righteousness, and to let go of our judgmentalism over other people. Because that pride, that judgment that we can possess is worse than the first sin. It's the parable that Jesus tells uh, towards the end of the Gospel of Luke of the you know, the Pharisee and the rich man who, you know, is looks up to heaven and says, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that poor beggar over there. And then the poor beggar won't even look at God and beats his chest and says, you know, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. And the one comes away righteous and the other comes away unrighteous. And we know which is which. And so maybe that's what God is doing with us. He is humbling us through our sin. He is making us rely on him to overcome that sin. Because it's only through humility, it's only through the humility of Christ, by putting on Christ, as Paul says, even in Romans chapter 8, by putting on Christ, that we are able to overcome these sins and not become self-righteous, not become judgmental, not become arrogant. So I pray for all of us that we would do this. Welcome to today's daily devotional. Today I want to talk about um, love and the Christian role of love in our faith. 
So we obviously know that love is something that we are called to as believers. God, we are told, is love. Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross as an act of love. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Our, our chief end as believers is to be like God. And then that requires becoming more and more loving in a very profound way. And you see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit, he stops himself in chapter 13, and he goes on a tangent about love. So I wanted to look at love in a couple of different passages, one of which, the first of which, is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 3 through 48. Jesus says, Ye have heard it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good unto them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans do the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans do so? But ye therefore be perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. Jesus is calling us to love our enemies, to not to bless those who persecute us. And in Romans, which is the passage we're going to look at in a second here, bless and curse not, to pray for them that despitefully use you. This doesn't mean pray for their destruction. Pray for them. Don't just pray in a way that you're self-righteous and you're all right. Pray for them, for their salvation, and also for yourself. Pray that you, in some ways, would be able to love them. Pray that they would be able to see the kingdom. And a lot of times when someone kill, is um, not killing us, as in the first century or second century context, but is despitefully using us, which is a good phrase, comes off the tongue rather easily. Um, when someone is despitefully using us, our urge is that they should have a downfall, that they should be despitefully used themselves. But instead, we're, we are called to pray for them. We are called to love them. Um, next passage I want to look at is in Romans 12, a passage I've used before in these devotionals, starting in verse 17. Romans 12, 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as it lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We are told that we ought to love our enemies, that we ought not to exact our wrath on them, but give place unto God's judgment and God's wrath. Our enemies are not our we are not our enemies are not our own in the sense that we are not to deal with them in a judgmental way. We are not to serve them out justice, but we are called to love them. We are called to love our enemies up including to those who are our political enemies, our our enemies in our family, our enemies who are our friends, our enemies socially. And a lot of times when we encounter an enemy, what we want to do is to act in anger, to get defensive, and to lash out, 
or to write off, say, that person's just stupid. That person is just, you know, not worth my time. And, you know, there are cases where we ought to back down. But to, to put ourselves in the place of God, in this place of arrogance and pride and self-righteousness, thinking that we are better off than those people across the political aisle or that family member who really, really don't get along with or the person in the community who is saying slanderous things about us. For us to want to extend a hand of love to them is not something that is possible in our own might. And really, we have the choice between acting out of fear and acting out of love because all of these negative responses that we have to people comes out of fear. It's like we're a, we're a dog backed in a corner. And if you back a dog in a corner that doesn't want to be backed into, what's the dog going to do? It's going to bite you. And that's what we do all the time when we act self-righteously and arrogantly in, in an angered manner, trying to exact our wrath and our judgment and our righteousness onto our brother. And so the last passage I want us to look at is another popular passage. It's in the First uh, John, starting in verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that hateth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not who, hateth his brother whom he has seen? How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loved God, that he who loveth God love his brother also. We are called as believers to not act out of fear, to not act out of sinfulness, to not act out of our own righteousness, but to act out of love. And this is the foolishness of the cross that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1. This is the foolishness that God would become man and allow himself to be killed by his enemies. He would hum allow himself to be humiliated on a cross, beaten to death, crucified to death by his enemies. And we ought to do the same thing. We ought to take up our own crosses and bless them that persecute us. Bless and curse not. That we ought to prayerfully live this life where we are going to encounter troubles, but through the grace of God and through his love flowing out of us, we love because he first loved us as we just read. We will be able to love our brother and then we will be able to show that we love God, because if we cannot love our brother who we have seen, we cannot love God who we have not seen. So that's my prayer for all of us, that we would be able to love our enemy, love those who persecute us, and not act out of fear, but act out of love, and the God who does love us. Thank you for watching. Good morning, and welcome to today's daily devotional. Uh, my name is Colton. I was told that it would be helpful if I said my name. So my name's Colton, and today I wanted to look at a passage in uh, Philippians. It's Philippians 3, verses 7 through 14. It reads, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, 
that I may know him and by the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has lit, has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So here we have St. Paul talking about um, the resurrection and the crucifixion and how we're pressing towards God in our life and how we're moving more and more towards him. Now, what's interesting about this passage is it, um, that I picked out is it kind of has two sections. It has this section where counting all is lost for Christ. Um, Jesus is my Lord. Everything is rubbish that I may, get, may gain Christ, um, that I may be found in him righteous by faith. Um, that I may be in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. When you sit down with this text, and when you really look at it, what you begin to see is Paul is almost surprised by his own belief. He's surprised by his belief in this resurrection. Um, earlier on, he talks about himself as a fool. In many other places, he talks about himself as a fool. He talks about the humility of Christ in his death and resurrection. For a person in the Roman Empire, to be crucified was of utmost humiliation. It was to be humiliated and shamed and tortured. And not only physically, but in a societal and status-like way. And so what Paul is holding out here for us is that we are to follow this crucified person. And this is completely insane when you think about it, that we would follow Christ. Why wouldn't we follow Caesar? Caesar killed Christ. But we're going to follow the one who was taken down by Caesar. And Paul, like I said, seems to be surprised by his own belief. Seems to be surprised by his belief in this resurrected Lord and this resurrected Savior. How can, how can you reconcile these two things? This power on the one hand of the Romans and the humility of Christ. And how we reconcile it in this little passage is by pushing forward towards Christ and participating in his resurrection, participating in ourselves, giving up our own wills, our own desires, and being ourselves humiliated, being ourselves tortured in our own ways for the cross of God, for the cross of Christ. And this is a very powerful passage to look at how, to look at how we are pressing into embodying what Christ has already set out for us as an example, and that our own lives, our own ways that we work in the world should be to ourselves and, and to the old man an astonishment, an astonishment of the lack of self-righteousness we should possess, the lack of um, pride that we should have, how we should sacrifice our wills and our desires and what we want and our knowledge for the good of someone else, our well-being at someone else's or our our, someone else's well-being at our expense. And that is what we are called to do in this Christian life, is to crucify ourselves, to participate, and to press forward. If you really look at the language that is given here, pressing into what Christ has done. We're not just sitting here saying that we're converted. Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Oh, yes, I said the sinner's prayer. No, we're pressing into what God has done and bearing the fruit 
which he has for us in our lives. So that's the word that I have for you today. The last analogy that I would leave you with is one that I heard of an Olympic swimmer. You have an Olympic swimmer. They're not, they're trying to strip off all the excess things that they have in order to win the race. They, you know, they don't want to have extra stuff holding them back. That should be us in our life. Cut out the extra stuff that's holding you back and press in with humility through the power of the cross into God's will for your life. And that may be hard and may be suffering, but it is what he desires, what he has for us. Thank you for watching. Good morning and welcome to today's Daily Catch devotional. My name is Colton. Um, today, we, the main passage that we are going to be looking at is um, Mark 6, uh, 16 through 18. <clears throat> and it reads as the following. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to, to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So one thing that we don't focus on um, very much nowadays is fasting. And this doesn't just mean like um, fasting from social media or um, fasting from television or fasting from, uh, you know, s s these these kind of medial fasts. Um, you don't need social media in your life. You don't need television in your life. These are honestly more than something you should fast to. This is something you should turn away from if you're idolizing it. That doesn't mean that these things are um, idolatrous in themselves, but they're easily become idols. And we're not supposed to fast from idols. We're supposed to demolish the idols. But there are certain things that we do need in our life. Um, uh, one of the most obvious is food. We do need food to live. Um, and so when Jesus is talking about fasting here, he doesn't talk about fasting as you're fasting some exhilarily, exhilarating part of your life. You're fasting a necessary part of your life. Um, we don't like fasting for one big reason, for the reason that Jesus talks about. Because we feel like if you fast, are you being self-righteous? Now let's look into this a little bit. When Jesus began his ministry, um, before this passage in uh, Matthew 4, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. Now that's a very long time. And what we see when Jesus fasts is that something happens to him. The devil comes to him. After these 40 days, that's when the devil comes to him. Now what you see, and why there are so many cautions against fasting in the New Testament, there are almost as many injunctions to fast as there are cautions to fast. Um, for example, in Colossians 2, uh, 20 through 23, which I don't have time to read, it says, it's the famous passage uh, where Paul's saying, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. Uh, these are the heresies of men, uh, is essentially what he's saying. Um, the point is, why are you making fasting your God? Why are you putting on this cloak of self-righteousness and pride? The reason why that there are so many injunctions to be careful when you fast um, or that fasting can produce unrighteousness, such as the uh, publican and the Pharisee story in Luke's gospel, where the Pharisee says, I fast so many times a day, I pray so many times a day, and then the publican says, uh, yeah, Lord, um, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The contrast there that we see. The reason for the incessance 
of cautioning when we're fasting is this. And I say when we're fasting because that's what Jesus says. He says, and when you fast. And Jesus says this in a stream of thoughts. He says it, you know, when you give, when you pray, when you're sacrificing yourself. And we don't stop giving because Jesus cautions against it. We don't stop praying because Jesus cautions against it. We don't stop sacrificing ourselves. So we shouldn't stop fasting either. But why is fast, fasting something we should be cautious about? Because fasting makes us realize our sin. When we fast, that's when the devil will try to attack us. When we are trying to get closer to God, when we are denying ourselves the necessities of this life, of our material existence, the devil's like, I'm going to go in right here. Right in this person's weak spot. When they're giving this up for the Lord, that's when I'm going to attack them. Because if you're trying to strive for the Lord, that's when the devil is going to be most focused on you. And the main way that the devil does this, especially with fasting, is through pride. The devil attacks us. He won't stop our fasting. Sometimes he won't even make the fasting super difficult to achieve. He won't make, you know, you're not eating food for a day very difficult to achieve. But what he will do is he'll mess with your mind and he'll make you think, oh, I'm fasting and I'm better than these other people who aren't fasting. And then, no matter how much you fast, no matter how much you pray, the devil is one. Because he's created in your heart pride. Now, this doesn't mean that all of a sudden we just stop fasting. Oh no, now I should stop fasting because um, the devil's going to come unto me. It's like, if the devil is coming unto you, you rebuke him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should flee the devil. But if the devil has this hold in our life, we will rely on food or else the devil has this power over our life. If we need food to be humble, then we are not truly humble. If food is what keeps our pride at bay, then that is a miserable existence. We are not following the Lord Jesus Christ as we ought to. So I would encourage um, us to consider what it would mean for each and every one of us to take fasting seriously and to take the fact of our own pride seriously. And why is it that fasting is cautioned against so much? And if I fast, am I going to become miserable and prideful. So we should do this with humility and reverence to our Lord Jesus Christ and not in our own strength. Because if we do it in our own strength, we are the worse than we would have been before. So I hope that that um, produces some food for thought and some encouragement to some of you. And I hope that God would bless your day today. Um, thank you for watching. Welcome to today's Daily Catch devotional. Uh, my name is Colton. Today, the passage that I will want us to be looking at is in Romans 8, uh, verses 11 through 14 in particular. So this reads, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So, in Romans, Paul is building his greatest uh, theological argument that we have in writing. Uh, Romans is basically a theological treatise Till you get to the end. There are some things about the churches, etc. Most of the other letters aren't like this. 
most of the other epistles, they're more personal, they're less theological, they're, there'll be side comments about theology, but Paul's really talking to them. Here, Paul is working out what God has showed him through Jesus Christ. How does he reconcile his Judaism with this revelation of Christianity? And this is how Paul does it. Now, what's interesting for us to notice here is that we need to look at what Paul is saying. He is saying, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So Christ has been risen from the dead to give life to your bodies. And now, what does this produce in us? But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So because Christ has risen from the dead, we are participating in his sacrifice. We are participating in his Spirit to sacrifice ourselves. Now, what does this look like? What does this look like? For us as believers. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what is Paul saying? If you continue to not sacrifice yourself, if you're living according to the flesh, according to the old man, according to those deeds, you are not in the Spirit. So if you are living in the Spirit, you will live and you will sanctify yourself. You will put to death the deeds of the body. You have to pay reverence to God and participate in his kingdom. This is what Paul is saying. Participating in the spirit means that you are doing something. You are worshiping God in your life. And this produces in us, and if, or and then he goes on to say, uh, rather, um, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You are a son of God. And daughter of God, um, this is New King James, so it's more archaic language, but you are a son or daughter of God by living in the Spirit, by putting to death the deeds of your body. So what, so what do we do then? We have to examine ourselves. Where is my sin? Where am I habitually sinning? Where am I you know, not honoring God in my life, in my mind, in my words, and in my heart, um, which encompasses your actions? And you are to put those things to death. You are to put to death your own desires. Our own desires are fleshly desires. And our fleshly desires are those things that we ought to crucify together with Christ. We participate in this crucifixion. Christ died for our sins in order that we can put to death these desires. On our own, of our own will, of our own accord, we are not able to put to death these desires. That's why Christ came in the spirit, so that we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. So as we put to death these deeds of the flesh, we are living in the spirit of God, which he has given us. And we are participating in the cross, right? We look to Christ, our example, who neglected his own desires, his own pride. Not that Christ had any pride, but his own potential for pride. And we do the same. We neglect our own desires and we live in love, in the spirit, towards sonship of God in allegiance to the kingdom. We have faith. Um, at times, a good understanding of faith is faithfulness or allegiance. We have allegiance to God. We have this faith that we are working out with fear and trembling. So this is what I want to encourage all of us to do today, is to examine ourselves. How am I not loving my neighbor as myself? How am I not loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And how am I going to allow Christ to come in my life and work in me, work in his spirit to put to death these deeds of my mortal body so that I will be called 
son and daughter of God. And this is not just something where we sit there and we don't do anything about it. God calls us to action. He calls us to love him through our words, through our deeds, through our thoughts, and to really show the fruit of our lives. So that's what I would encourage you guys today, is to live in the Spirit. Live in what God has given us through his son Jesus on the cross. So I hope that you all have a very blessed day, and thank you for listening.